Our Old Covenant reading this evening comes from the prophet Nahum. Nahum chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. This is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you, and I will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command about you. No more shall your name be perpetrated. For the house of your God I will cut off. The carved image and the metal image I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Our new covenant reading this evening comes from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10, verses 5 to 17. The Word of God. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come this evening, once again, to hear your word to us, we ask, Lord, that Christ's word would dwell in us richly, And to that end, Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit upon us. 
to shed light into our hearts and our minds. Lord, that you would work mightily in us, that we would hear and understand, that our affections would be stirred, and Lord, that our wills would be changed, that we would desire to do your will as you have commanded and as you enable. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you turn back to the book of Nahum, we'll be looking at those verses that we read a few moments ago. Nahum chapter 1, verses 12 uh, to 15. Is the Lord's judgment good news? Well, the answer to that question by the prophet Nahum is a resounding yes. But it is only good news for those who have reason to believe that the Lord's judgment will bring them relief rather than retribution. This is a theme that we see throughout the scriptures where we see the separating effects of divine judgment. Just think of Jesus' words in Matthew 25, verses 32 to 33, where the effects of judgment result in the parting ways between the sheep and the goats. Jesus says, Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Coming to the end here of Nahum chapter 1 brings us to a very important realization regarding the burden of judgment declared upon Nineveh. It is good news for God's people and only for God's people. I want to look at this passage this evening in three parts. First, the Lord's declaration to Judah in verses 12 to 13 that marks the end of oppression. Secondly, the Lord's decree against Assyria that marks the end of the line in verse 14. And three, the good news that frees God's people to worship and to enjoy their God Verse 12 actually offers the first and only instance of a thus says the Lord in this book. Of course, that's not to say that the rest of Nahum's words are not the word of the Lord. But rather, this declaration from the Lord in verse 12 serves to attribute certainty to Nineveh's fall, the very word of the mouth of God. And there's very good reason for such a strong assertion and assurance at this moment, which verse 12 actually clues us into here. Nahum says, though they are at full strength and many. Now at the time of Nahum's prophecy, all appearances and every shroud of human wisdom would scoff at the thought that Assyria would not only fall, but be utterly and completely destroyed. It was really unthinkable 
in those days. Yet the Lord here says that they will be cut down and pass away. In this moment, Assyria is not tottering on the verge of collapse. There are no visible cracks in the structure of their leadership or their military might. They are at full strength. They are at the height of their power and their influence. But the Lord does not wait for them to become weak and frail. No, the Lord will act when they are seemingly most powerful. That's what Nahum says. And he will cut them down. All flesh is grass, we're told by Isaiah. And the Lord says, right here, that he is going to come and mow down Nineveh. And he is going to pass over them, just as he did in Egypt. This cutting down of Assyria has immense implications for the Lord's people. Verse 12 goes on here. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. The situation Israel finds itself in as exiles in Assyria, right? We've been mostly talking about Judah, but Israel's, the the northern kingdom has been in exile already. And the situation that Judah finds itself in under the oppressive hand of Assyria is attributed here to the Lord afflicting them as children who have been facing the fatherly chastisement of Almighty God because of their willful disobedience. But the Lord here declares that affliction is coming to an end as the instrument of the Lord's chastisement faces judgment for their own wicked deeds. See, the Lord under whose covenant Judah lives is about to deliver them from the enemy. A deliverance that is imminent, as the beginning of verse 13 tells us. Nahum says, now I will break his yoke from off you and burst your bonds apart. Whereas Judah had been paying tribute to Assyria, and Judah had been under the political pressure of Assyria, what the Lord here is promising is freedom. The Lord is promising to them freedom from oppression. Freedom, as one commentator says, to pursue his own labors to the glory of God. See, judgment on Assyria here marks the end of Judah's oppression. Now, as we consider the fact that this deliverance is a microcosm of the Lord's deliverance once and for all through Christ, we should recognize that we as Christians have an even greater promised freedom. Not a political freedom. Though we do pray for our, our civil authorities with the desire that we would lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness, uninhibited in the exercise of our faith, as Paul commands us. Pray in 1 Timothy 2 2. But the greater freedom we have is from the reigning power of sin. Christ has broken the bonds apart that held us captive to sin, that we must obey its lusts. 
and has set us free from condemnation by the power of His Holy Spirit. But for God's enemy, the result of judgment is much different. It is not good news at all. It is that burden that Nahum said. Now as is typical in the prophets and in particular in Nahum with his rhetorical style here, verse 14 marks a very abrupt shift in the subject of the pronouns. Judah was addressed in verse 12 and 13. And in verse 14... The shift is to Nineveh, and that's where the prophet begins to address his words. Here in verse 14, if you look, the prophet says, The Lord has given a command about you. The Lord has made his decision about you. The Lord has made a decree about you. A decree for Judah That comes as good news, but for Nineveh, it is a decree of curse and condemnation. No more shall your name be perpetuated. The lineage of this wicked branch will come to an end, along with all of their false gods. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. Through the Lord's judgment against Nineveh, he's going to prove again that he is indeed the living and true God. Just as he did in Egypt, proving that their gods were utterly worthless. Just like he did to the Philistines. If you remember, the ark of the Lord was taken and set in the temple of Dagon in Ashdod. And the Lord broke the idol as it fell before him. The idol's head was cut off. His hands were cut off. Proving that the God of the Philistines was worthless. Their God couldn't see. Their God couldn't hear. Their God couldn't understand And could do nothing, not even to stop itself from falling to the ground. How powerful was their God? Their God was worthless. And the same will be true of the Assyrian gods. And the same will be true of the Assyrians who set themselves up as if they were God. The Assyrians who imagined themselves to be the pinnacle of power. Who imagined that their empire would continue on forever. Really, what's happening is that the Lord is making their grave. That they will fall into it. Why? Why? Because as the end of verse 13 tells us, For you are Vile. You are vile, the Lord declares. Now, Nahum goes on there in verse 15 to describe the destruction of Nineveh as good news for the people of Judah. And we may ha- initially have some trouble with that idea. How can that be right? And how can that be good? That one nation's destruction 
is another nation's joy. How is that right? How is that good? It is because they are vile. Now let's not be naive about the evils present in this world. Now in many ways, we don't see those evils quite as acutely as other generations have. In many ways, we in our country are very insulated from the ever-present horrors that millennia of human history has shown us. Now let me just for a second offer a peek inside the gruesome and vile reality of Assyria's mode of existence. Who, who are the Assyrians? What are they like? These words come directly from the annals of the Assyrian king Ashurnazirpal II from the 9th century B.C. He brags in this way. I built a pillar against his city, and I flayed all the chiefs who had revolted. And I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up within the pillar. Some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. And others I bound to stakes round about the pillar. And I cut the limbs of the officers, of the royal officers who rebelled. Many captives from them I burned with fire, and many I took as living captives. From some I cut off their noses, their ears, and their fingers, and of many I put out the eyes. I made one pillar of the living and another of heads. I'll stop there, but the inscription goes on and on and on. These are the things the kings of Assyria wanted to be remembered. This is how they wanted to be remembered. That's why this king had this inscription engraved in stone. So that we, how many years later, would read about what this king had done. And these are just the typical uh, atrocities that continued to be the practice of subsequent Assyrian kings, until the empire's demise, vile is what the Lord calls it. Vile is a good way to describe these acts of unmistakable depravity. If every sin deserves God's wrath and curse in this life and the life to come, how much more deserving is Nineveh? For their heinous disregard for life. The Lord's decree against Assyria marks the end of the line. Now just imagine. Imagine being in a village under the oppressive hand of Assyria in the land of Judah. Knowing day in and day out. That upon those mountain ridges that surround the land that your family has lived in for generations, at any moment, at any moment, could come the enemy army descending into the valley like locusts. Which is what the Assyrians did to every nation that stood against them. 
And you just heard of the types of horror that they brought with them. And here is the prophet Nahum making a declaration against the most powerful empire in the world. What do, what do Assyrian kings do to those who stand against them? They spread their skins on the walls. How do you think the people of Judah would receive this word that could incite the king of Assyria to come against them? These are bold words from the prophet. But again, it is the Lord's decree. Which means that it is certain. So for those who trust in the Lord, this is actually good news. See, in the ancient world, information didn't travel over radio waves or Wi-Fi signals, in case you didn't know that. News was carried by messengers who would go and stand in a high place and and shout the message. And the message the Lord declares through Nahum is that the enemy is defeated, not that the enemy is coming. Rather than the enemy army descending upon Judah, Judah's going to see a very different sight A messenger who comes from the battle to declare victory. That the enemy is no more and will never again stand. No longer shall the villagers live in fear, but they shall live in peace. Is what the Lord declares. That peace, the the essence of wholeness, blessedness, and joy. Not simply the absence of Affliction, but life abundant. Life as God intends it to be lived. Now you've likely heard verse 15 before. It's an almost verbatim quotation of Isaiah 52.7, where Isaiah prophesied the defeat of Babylon. Now there's an irony there. There's an irony there. See, Nahum seems to be quoting the prior words of Isaiah that in the context of Isaiah were regarding an enemy that has yet to come on the scene against the people of Judah. Babylon comes after Assyria. Because Babylon is the instrument that the Lord raises up to destroy the Assyrians. So that though Judah will be saved from Assyria... They're going to need to be delivered again from Babylon. Verse 15 is one of those instances in the Old Testament prophets when the immediate historical context stands in the scope of redemptive history beyond itself. Where the deliverance from a particular enemy speaks to the ultimate and everlasting deliverance the Lord's had planned before time began. A deliverance that this deliverance from Assyria prepared God's people to anticipate. How how would Judah have known to anticipate that the Lord would deliver them from Assyria? Would it not have been the exodus? And in that same way, 
In the New Testament, Paul takes the prophecy of Isaiah, which is used by Nahum, and applies it to its fullest intent as the proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation of the good news of Jesus. See, every deliverance of God's people in the Old Testament foreshadowed the final deliverance that would come only through Jesus Christ. That Christ, by his life and death and resurrection, put an end to sin and death once and for all. He demolished every stronghold of Satan and ushers his people into everlasting blessedness and peace. See, if if deliverance is reserved only for an earthly enemy, there will yet arise another after it. We learn anything from history. Because the great problem is not nations and kings. The the greatest problem of Judah is not simply the Assyrians. The greatest problem is not nations and kings, but the sin and the influence of the evil one that undergirds the oppressive force of wicked empires. And just notice for a minute how God's people are delivered from their enemy. The call to the people comes at the beginning of verse 15. What does it say? Behold! right? Take heed! Look up upon the mountains! There's a message to be heard. And that message is one of peace. It is a message of deliverance. Not that the people need to take up arms and go in and fight the battle to conquer their enemies. No. It is a message of their deliverance that comes as a message to be believed concerning the salvation that the Lord himself has accomplished. A salvation that the Lord himself enacts. Right? The good news is that God has acted on their behalf. Now, this is in the past tense, and this has yet to happen, but it is, it is as good as done when the Lord decrees it. His hand alone is the means of their deliverance here. And it's even... It's, it's even as through their sin... They had brought themselves into this affliction. Remember that? Assyria is is afflicting Judah because of their own waywardness. Even to that, the Lord says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. And it is that message of deliverance that changes the orientation of their lives. Oppression had disrupted. And their waywardness had led them into affliction. But the good news of deliverance ushers them into a new kind of life. A redeemed kind of life. A delivered kind of life. The Lord's deliverance summons them to a life of celebration and joy. 
What are they to do in response to the peace that is coming published to them, proclaimed to them? Keep your feasts, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. As Calvin says, when peace was restored, the people were not to bury so great and so remarkable a kindness of God, but to pay their vows. That is, that they were to testify that God was the author of their deliverance and that the redemption which they had obtained was the peculiar work of God. The good news changes something. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. That that declaration from the Lord means that that deliverance is as good as done. And there's something important for us to see here. The response to deliverance is not a hedonistic indulgence in worldly pleasure now that there's no enemy to fear. There's no Assyrians. What do we do now? Eat, drink, and be merry. No, the response is rather the free enjoyment of the Lord. Keep your feasts is a call for Judah to worship the Lord. It's a call for Judah to celebrate his deliverance with wholehearted fervor. Judah had been neglecting the feasts of the Lord. They had been taking lightly the commands of their God. But we see here that redemption is not enacted as a result of religious fervor. But rather redemption stirs the hearts of the redeemed to religious fervor. That's the direction. And is it not the Christian gospel? The, the fullness of God's redemptive work that we get to the root of problem of the problem of sin, that we find the spring of life and victory, where we find the greatest reason to keep our feast. Keep your feasts, redeemed ones. What's the central feast in Israel? There's one feast. Would it not be the Passover? Which in itself is typified in the Lord's redemption. It speaks about Jesus. And in the gospel of Jesus, we find its fullest expression. This side of glory in the communion with God and his people. In the Lord's Supper. That we would remember and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That his deliverance would forever be on our lips. And in our hearts. Stirring us to love our God and to enjoy him forever. That we would rejoice continually in the salvation that has been accomplished for us. That we receive by hearing the good news proclaimed and believing it in our hearts. Like Judah's promise regarding Assyria. We have the same promise, but in consummate fulfillment. 
Look at the end of verse 15. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. That good news. That victory has been won. That our record of debt has been nailed to the cross. That death has lost its sting. That Satan has been defeated for never again shall the worthless, never again shall Belial, as we talked about last week, pass through you. Sin has lost its power. And the afflictions of this life are now but light and momentary in light of the glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. For in him we have perfect peace as we are heirs with him of eternal life in glory. What was indeed good news for Judah concerning Assyria is the best news for us who live this side of the cross. And so, dear saints, in light of the good news proclaimed to you through Christ, keep your feasts and fulfill your vows. Worship the Lord with grateful hearts. Serve the Lord with gladness and peace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the pictures that we get through the history of your people, of your way of deliverance. And we thank you, Lord, that in the fullness of time, according to your good plan, sent Christ that peace would be published and proclaimed to us sinners. Lord, we thank you for Christ and your redemptive work. In his name, amen.